we have a new show, a half-hour show called On the Air that we hope will be on the air. Yeah. I'm shooting a pilot for that soon, mm -hmm. and I'm going to finally be able to do this film I've been trying to do called Ronnie Rocket. Ronnie Rocket? Now, Ronnie Rocket. Tell us of Ronnie Rocket. What is that? It's um, the absurd mystery of the strange forces of existence. <laughs> yeah. and, um, Who might be uh, in that? Little Mike, uh, Michael Anderson, will be Ronnie Rocket. Jingle Bell Scott, you're brilliant. This is one of your best ideas ever. Oh, hate when I'm perfect. But here we are sitting here in December, and you have that special connection in the Twin Peaks world. Told you that today season four of Twin Peaks was going to start. No one knows, of course, because they kept it under wraps. I mean, like they would, if there was going to be season four of Twin Peaks, you know they wouldn't tell anyone and no one would know. But I knew. So I have invited a hoos ho of Twin Peaks people. They're all in the next room. We got Chris Matthews, Bill Abelson, Aaron Cohen, and Joyce Picker, and Diana with that ridiculous last name, Colt and Robin, Maya, John and Marcel, Peter, Bob, Becky, Yvette, Julia, we got them all. Ben and Brian, of course. And we're going to watch Twin Peaks together just as soon as it starts here. Let me just pull up my Showtime app. I'm sure going to say, uh, oh boy, part 18, newest Twin Peaks. You don't suppose that I've been lied to about season four, but, but all the news, the internet, the clues... One time, David Lynch did a weather report. There's weather in Twin Peaks, therefore, there was gonna be season four now. What am I gonna do? I got all these people in the next room. Wait a minute. Joyce Pickers in the next room. Oh, we always know that when it comes to performing, Joyce can't stop herself. So I need something for them to perform. Look at this. I got this Ronnie Rocket script. I don't think anyone's ever heard it. No one has it but me. I got it from the same connection that uh, told me about this bad thing, but um, uh, no guys, uh, real soon the surprise is coming. Just hold on. Uh, yeah, get back in there. Don't let Chris Matthews drink. It, it doesn't go well. Yeah, I'll be in there in a second. They could all play a part and just uh, read the script, perform it. I mean, Twin Peaks Unwrapped would probably come back from the dead for a very Ronnie Rocket holiday special. You know it's got to be killing Ben and Brian to be on the outside, not doing shows. They would probably post it. Yes. Perfect. We'll just put this in the other room. Hey guys, look what I found. Hey, take a look at that. I don't know. I feel like Chris Matthews could do wonders with this. Aaron going, <laughs> he'd be so good as The Rocket or Ronnie, either one. Wonder if it matters that I never read it. Eh, probably not. No season four of Twin Peaks? We don't care. We've got a very Ronnie Rocket holiday special. Twin Peaks on rap style.
everybody, and welcome to our a very Ronnie Rocket Christmas special. We have our panel today. We have Joel Bacco and John Thorne. We're going to talk about Ronnie Rocket. It is a it's a crazy script. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I know people can find it online of some way. I, I encourage people to read it if you can. If you can find it and read it, do it before you listen to our podcast today because I feel like you'd get more out of it. Uh, we're going to have unseen players coming back to do certain scenes from the, the script, which is, should be a lot of fun. And we're going to be talking about the history. We're going to be talking about characters. We're going to talk about the ending and so much more with Ronnie Rocket with our panel. I'm going to read a brief a description of what Ronnie Rocket is all about from our from the Ronnie Rocket wiki. I did add a few things. Obviously, it doesn't it doesn't encompass everything because there's a lot going on in this film. Uh, Ronnie Rocket tells the story of a detective seeking to enter a mysterious second dimension, aided by his ability to stand on one leg, which. <laughs> I, that part of the story is so bizarre, right? The whole, can you stand on one leg and recite things? And the whole, your shoelace is untied. And it was very like innocent, Lynchian kind of thing. It's just, it's, it's, it's unbizarre, but it's, it's so bizarre. He's being obstructed uh, on his quest by a strange landscape of our rooms and threatening train. While being stalked by the donut men, the whole donut, he, he loves his donuts, uh, who weld electricity as a weapon. In addition to the detective story, the film shows the tale of uh, Ronald, a teenage dwarf who suffers a surgical mishap, which leaves him dependent on being plugged into an electric, an electric socket every 15 minutes, I believe. This dependency grants him an affinity over electricity, which he can use to produce music or cause destruction. Uh, Ronnie is put together by two scientists with the help of a woman uh, who pays them in sex, I guess. I, I don't really know that relationship. <laughs> um, this is the part I added. Uh, the boy gets the name Ronnie Rocket and becomes a rock star, uh, befriending a tap dancer named uh, Electra Cute. And I mean, there's a lot that's not in that description that's just kind of like the elevator pitch. Anything before, uh, before we jump into the elements um, in that description that I missed do you think is worthy of being in that description? Well, I think, you know, did we, we just I just mentioned it. They don't talk about, you know, he becomes a rock star, but the character of Ronnie Rocket is somewhat passive. And he reminded yeah. me of other Lynch characters, uh, oh, yeah. the Elephant Man and Dougie from the return he is used by particularly by you know sort of the bad guy and the bad guy is going to use him so that that part of the plot there is that he has sort of overcome people who are trying to to take advantage of him yeah and i i thought it was kind of humorous and ridiculous obviously it was a high school band <laughs> like they were like just a high school band after school right and they became a rock star like it, it was just very ridiculous um and like everybody just loved them and uh he would like perform a song he would sing and then there was a woman who, a girl who tap dance and they were going to be stars like it was so weird like i'm like uh, battle of the bands isn't handing out cash 
but like in this world it is. Um, it's like dancing with the stars, I guess. Ronnie Rocket or the absurd mystery of the strange forces of existence. Black. Fade in a giant stage, enormous with black curtains, open. The entire stage is filled with a wall of fire 200 feet high. Within the fire are thousands of souls screaming out silently, only the roaring of the fire. There is a dark land where mysteries and confusions abound, where fear and terror fly together in troubled cities of absurdities. Black clouds race by over a soot-covered city where it is darkest night. Only a few tiny yellow squares of light in the old buildings and factories. Everything is so dark. Very little life is noticed except the tiny dark yellow squares. There are no cars seen from this high angle looking down over the city. No people out this night. A closer look at some of the buildings reveals a 30s style architecture, although quite plain and very massive. Office buildings with heavy industrial factories. A smokestack pours tons of heavy black smoke slowly and silently into the dark night sky. Hundreds of heavy electrical wires crisscross through the sky, and electricity hums comes from the giant boxes on the poles. The headlights, and then a car. It moves slowly below, down a street, then turns out of sight. An old neon sign over a diner says, City Diner! A large old hospital and the front steps. Inside, a nurse goes by, wheeling a patient on a rolling bed. The corridor is now empty. Moving slowly through the empty corridor, an open steel door. Down now two flights of cement stairs and along a dark and moist corridor off of which sit decaying subterranean hospital rooms. We hear the heavy machinery that keeps the massive building operating. Pipes leak rusted, festering water into puddles on the cold floor. Entering one of these small decaying rooms, we see an old hospital bed. A dim name tag on the end of the bed bears the name Ronald de Arte, and the bed under the white sheets lays Don Ronald de Arte, who, because of some strange unnamed happening, is now here quite disfigured. There is no human form to him, really, except he does have arms and legs, but they're under the sheets. The chest and head area are very strangely shaped, but there is a hole for a mouth and a nose. In the mouth, there are teeth and a tongue which moves. There are two eyes above the nose hole. The eyes dart back and forth. Suddenly and quite mysteriously, there's a detective now standing in this room. He wears black pants and shoes, a white shirt, a black jacket, which is now hanging on a rack over against the cement wall. Over his shirt, he wears leather straps and a shoulder holster, which supports a 38 pistol under his arm. He is standing, looking at the hospital bed. Ronald Dearte is now making some sounds, very high-pitched whines, and is attempting to reach a piece of paper which lies on a movable steel table next to his bed. The detective moves in closer and hands the paper to Ronald, who contorts in order to get his arm over to it. More high-pitched whines and a knocking of his hand on the table near a pencil which leaps with every hit lets the detective know that Ronald now requires a pencil with which to write. Ronald very shakily scribbles out the following symbols and all the while he makes very long, high-pitched whines. The detective takes the paper to a small lamp across the room and looks the symbols over. He folds the paper and continues to hold it as he turns toward Ronald again. He comes up closer to Ronald, 
Ronald makes some more noises. The detective now is very close to Ronald, looking into his eyes. Very faintly, the big close-up of Ronald stays double exposed as the detective turns, gets his coat, and goes quickly out of the room. Putting on his coat, he looks suspiciously, left and right down the dark corridor. No one. He goes down the hall and disappears around the corner. No one is on the street as he crosses it to a large building where he stops and turns back to see if anyone is following him. He looks carefully all around him. Satisfied with the situation as it is, he turns back again and goes down to the street into the darkness. Now the detective is in a train station. Several people are boarding a black steel train in a dimly lit passenger loading area. The detective climbs aboard and finds a seat. Even with the lights on, it is still so dimly lit. The cigar and cigarette smoke is very thick. The people talk, but not too audibly, because the train and station sounds are so loud. It is a dull crowd of very poor working-class people. The train begins to move and rumbles through the night. At the first station, nearly everyone lets off. An arcing of electricity and on again to the next station, which appears to be the last because everyone gets off, except the detective. The people hurry through the underground station, then all is deserted. The train continues to make sounds, but doesn't move. A conductor appears and finds the detective still aboard. Off the train! I want to go deeper into the city. I'm a detective. You a detective? Yes. Train doesn't go far into the city. Can only go one, maybe two, more stations. Closed up beyond that. No one. You want to go, but only one, maybe two stations. Can I get another train to go further? No more trains ever beyond here never go. Now three people. At this, two strange-looking people slowly enter the train car from the other end and begin coming toward the detective and the conductor. Bored? The conductor leaves the car and the other two sit down and look at the detective, then at each other, then down at the floor, then up at the detective. Outside, the conductor yells something which echoes in the background, then someone way far away yells. The conductor yells again and the train begins to move very slowly ahead with much grinding metal sounds. Streaking along, the train moves into even heavier darkness. Occasionally a light can be seen outside the windows, but mostly all is black. The lights in the train dim down lower as a humming sound comes from above the trains. The train slows and enters the station. This station is empty and very old. It looks completely unused. Papers and dirt are blown throughout. Windows are broken and most of the lights are out. The outside is suddenly lit up considerably by a huge electrical arcing of the wiring on the train. It stops and the lights inside come up slightly. The conductor walks quickly into the car and as he goes by the three of them. Bad repair. Electrical sparks. Outside the electricity arcs again and the train jumps forward. It moves along slowly and the giant humming sound is now constant. The train goes through darkness and then comes to an area where there are some light bulbs strung on wires and the train slows to a grinding halt. The two across from the detective leave the train as the conductor walks in. End of the line. Is this the station? No one uses the station. All that's left. We have train trouble now. A bad place. Get off the train now.
this is the end of the line. From here on, you're on your own, bub. The detective steps off the train, and the train begins backing up out of sight. The detective stands near a bulb. Moths fly against the bulb. Over and over again, they hit at it, trying to get at the light. The detective watches the moths. What has happened to this place? Now, out of the darkness comes an old man, Terry. In fact, one of the two people that traveled on the train with the detective. He is an older man, rather mean-looking, and wears one pant leg rolled up exposing a gauze bandage. He carries a fly swatter with him, and from time to time swats a sore leg at the bandage. When the sore is particularly acting up, Terry turns the swatter around and digs under the bandage with the wire handle. Now Terry circles the detective, slowly eyeing him. Get up. Get up here, out of the light. I was supposed to meet you, but had to get rid of that guy I was traveling with. Now you listen to me, and listen carefully. Answer my questions, too. You're new in this part of the city, right, sucker? Yes. Yeah, just what I thought. What a mess you seem to be, too. I meet a lot of people, and I can tell a few things about them. And I can see you are a mess. Settle down. What do you- Don't try to tell me. I'll tell you. I could tell you that too, believe me. Well, tell me then. You want to go further into the city. To the inner city. Yes. Can you hold a thought? What? Can you hold a thought? I can think, if that's what you mean. Oh god, we're gonna have trouble. Let me ask you a question. Where did you get that ugly fresh face? Let me say it another way. How is it that you came to an arrangement of features such as that which you are exposing to me now? Can you answer that? No. This is unbelievable. Are you a detective? Yes. Okay, smart guy. What are the three rules of a detective then? Stay alert, concentrate, stay clean. Right. Now, there's new rules in this part of the city, see? New rules. Say new rules. New rules. That's right. It's hard to understand. Hard to concentrate. I don't know if you heard me. Yes, I heard you. What did I say? You said it's hard to concentrate. Where? In this part of the city. That's right. Now where you want to go, the inner city, it's impossible to concentrate, see? Huh, buddy? Do you comprehend what I'm telling you? Yes. So? So tell me what I have to do. Hell, I suppose you want me to do it for you, too. You don't even know. Yes, I know some things, but not everything. God help us. We are rarely gonna need it. Look at this, detective. Hey, let's get in off the street. This is gonna take some time to explain. Terry takes the detective along a street lined with old, cheap hotels. He leads the detective to one of them. Outside the door, a mangy black dog growls. The detective jumps back. Hey, it's a dog is all. I... I'm afraid of dogs, and they know it. The detective stands in the shadows in front of one of the hotels and overhears a part of a conversation between a hard, low-class girl and a smooth, greasy, tattooed man. I got idea, man. You take me for a walk under the sycamore trees, in the dark trees that blow, baby. In the dark trees, I'll see you, and you'll see me. I'll see you in the branches that blow in the breeze. I'll see you under the trees. 
I'll twist your neck. No, 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 you won't. I'll run away from you. I'll catch you. I'll catch you in the dark trees and kill you. No, no, no. The detective goes into a hotel. Inside, behind the desk, there is a clerk who's sleeping. So, gentlemen, dive into it, because there's a lot to talk about. Um, the history of Ronnie Rocket. It's kind of like a mystery, but I feel like the three of us kind of piece it together a little bit. I'm sure there's a lot more. Lynch doesn't talk about it a lot. So I don't know if you guys have anything to give us insight of Lynch's thinking or the making of this or maybe why it wasn't made. Yeah, I can I can jump in there. Um, I don't personally know a lot about the history of this um, film. We We've heard Lynch reference it, and we've heard lots of uh, other writers reference it uh, when they're talking about Lynch. Um, but uh, I'm going to use as my reference to make sure I give credit to a book uh, by David Hughes called The Complete Lynch. And he has a short uh, entry in his book about unfinished or, in- or never made films. And he has a he has a short entry about Ronnie Rocket, and it looks to me from quick reading that Lynch had been thinking about this for a while uh, back in the days of Eraserhead, even in Elephant Man. And uh, according to the book, it looked like uh, he was going to perhaps pursue it after the Elephant Man because um, I guess there's an actor named Dexter Fletcher who was in the Elephant Man. And according to this, that he, Dexter Fletcher, uh, was the uh, the actor that Lynch had in mind to play Ronnie Rocket. This is Ronnie was a, like a man-made kid, says Dexter Flesher, and these young people found him somehow and plug him into blah, blah, blah. We'll talk about that. But then I guess maybe Fletcher played a, a young boy or, or, or a youth in Elephant Man. It says, when Lynch realized Fletcher had grown too large for the role, he placed an advertisement in Variety, an open casting call, and that's how he found Michael J. Anderson and had thought Michael J. Anderson might be the actor to play uh, Ronnie Rocket. According to this, Lynch had a three-picture deal with the French financier Sibby or Cyby 2000 or C-I-B-Y 2000. And the first of those films was Fire Walk With Me. So there was some thought that Ronnie Rocket might be one of those three films, but I guess Lynch kind of cooled, it says he kind of cooled on the subject that he didn't really have as much interest in this particular film after I guess after Firewalk With Me. It says, uh, after Firewalk With Me, Lynch cooled on the project. After so many years, now I have the opportunity to make it if I want to, Lynch told the Los Angeles Times. But when I read it, it doesn't do the things it should to me. I've lost the electricity in it. It's like a light bulb with no electricity. And then he says, you know, after he's kind of become more of a success, if I had gotten the money to do it right now, I think it would be a very different story. And now the script got out, which is what we're talking about. And he says, not that people who have read the script would know what the film would be like. After all, the script is only a blueprint. Anyway, that's a little bit from this book. And again, it's the David Hughes book, The Complete Lynch. I know I'm kind of jumping around there, but my knowledge of it is somewhat limited. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Joel, do you have anything to add to that? 
Yeah, I've read a couple drafts of the script before, and I reread one of them today, the one that we're, I think we're going to be focusing on more. And I'm always struck by, um, I, th I think I've read three Lynch scripts at this point. Ronnie Rocket, One Saliva Bubble, also unproduced comedy that he wrote with Mark Frost, and uh, the script for Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. And that statement that John just read really strikes me because I, I do think it's true. Like the Lynchian quality does not really come through in his words. Like you can see the motifs mm. there, you can see it, but that like mood, that quality, it it just doesn't, it doesn't quite translate on the page. I, I think of that, especially with Firewalk Me, which is like my favorite, um, well, certainly one of my favorite Lynch films or films of all time, but when you, it's very like cut and dry on the page and it's sort of a mess, <laughs> especially with all the scenes that he would cut out in the missing pieces. Um, it just, it doesn't read like a cohesive story. This is a little more streamlined, but it's still kind of like, um, you know, Lynch is like in between the words in certain ways. Although I do think his dialogue, there's, there's a very, you know, particularly Lynchian dialogue that you can see in Ronnie Rocket. Mm. But uh, it, it is, it is interesting to read and just be like, Okay, so to read it is one thing, but what would this look like? Or especially, I think, sound like, like Ooh, all of yeah. the music and stuff in this, you, you really need that other dimension to get a full feel. So we're sort of, to use uh, an idea from Ronnie Rocket itself, we're sort of groping in the dark uh, to, to figure out what this movie is just from the script, I think, which is kind of fun, but uh, worth noting. <laughs> Yeah, I think after reading it, my imagination, I'm sure you guys felt the same way. I mean, reading it, your imagination is going to be, it's just way more powerful than what I would see on the screen at this point, because just some really crazy things happen in this. And I was thinking, like, how would he have filmed this? It almost seems like impossible. I'm sure he would have done a great job. But it, it, it yeah. reads very, very ambitious. Yeah, I mean, very. He's, he's yes, envisioning some things that, you know, right now you would you would think, well, only you could do it only with computer graphics. You yeah. know, yep. some of the, you know, some of the, um, you know, what he's what he's describing scenes. Obviously, that's his ideal. It's what he wants to see on screen. And I'm sure when it, you know, when it actually came to the making of it, if he'd gotten that far, he would have had to compromise on some of these elaborate backgrounds and the setting that he was envisioning. Um, not to mention some of the things that happened to the characters. So, uh -huh. um, so yeah, anyway, uh, I'm not quite sure how he would have made this specific script uh, as it's, as it's written. Yeah, right. it almost seems like it needs a Dune level budget. Yes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, but then, you know, you look at the Dune level budget and uh, I've written about Dune a little bit and, and it's still somewhat disappointing in that the scope of the book doesn't quite get conveyed in what, what he put on screen. So, so I don't even know if back then, I don't know how much money he could have you know, if he could have succeeded in making this. Hmm. It could have been another Eraserhead where it took him another seven years or longer, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I, from Room to Dream, um, I got a couple couple little fun facts. I guess he had met with a studio person to pitch Ronnie Rocket. I don't know which studio, but um, and as Lynch was explaining it to the guy, told him to get out of the office. They didn't want to hear it. <laughs> And then on page 165 of Room to Dream, Lynch does mention there's two characters in this in this script named Bob and Dan 
were two scientists that actually helped build Ronnie Rocket. And those were his twins uh, that had, I, I, I believe his uh, girlfriend or wife had a miscarriage. Um, and so in memory of them, he named Bob and Dan the two scientists. But Bob always just seems to be this very popular name anyway with him. Uh, Ronnie Rocket, Blue Bob, Bob and Twin Peaks. I mean, it just seems like one of those names he, he falls in love with and he just uses constantly. going to say the name Dan, too. The only place I can think of a Dan in Lynch's work, because it sounded familiar and I couldn't think why. And then I realized it was the name of one of, or maybe like Dan O or something. It was like the mm. name of one of his woodpeckers, Woody Woodpeckers, <laughs> that he rescued from a gas station and said <laughs> that they were his friends. And then Years later, he did an interview and he's like, they're out of my life now. They started to exhibit <laughs> bad qualities. <laughs> and Dan, Bob, Chucko, and Laugh or something else. I can't remember the rest of them. He, he likes simple yeah. American names. Mm. You know, the simple, oftentimes one syllable names. Mm. Um, you know, Jim, Bob, Dan, Bill. You, you see on his B, B board, you know, when he has bees pinned to the boards, he's named all the bees these, you know, very simple names for, he didn't go any, anything real elaborate. And I, I, who knows what the meaning is there for that. Right. Yeah, it is. You're right. I mean, he does love the good old fashioned American names. Yeah. Um, and you don't forget them either. I, you know, you don't, you, you, you I, I hear the word Bob now and <clears throat> I honestly think Twin Peaks. Main City, night. At the hospital, two men, Dr. Dan Pink and Dr. Bob Platinum, sneak down to the hospital basement and look into each room, searching. When they find Ronald's room, they enter. They move toward Ronald, and he starts a high scream. They muffle him with their gloved hands, unhook their electrical apparatus, scoop him up, and steal him away from the hospital. They carry Ronald in an old sedan through dark streets to an old building. They go to a service elevator and travel to one of the top floors, to a laboratory which the two of them maintain. It is equipped with black, massive electrical appliances and gadgets. The walls are a yellow-green and all is lit by blue glowing fluorescent lights giving the place a scientific eeriness. They sit Ronald in a very special electrical chair which has several tiers behind the back of the place Ronald sits. Each tier has new dials and cords and antennae and symbols. They take a blood test and spin the blood in a special jar. They check his tongue and eyes. They throw levers, turn dials, and mumble things to themselves as they work. They work very quickly. Suddenly, something begins to smoke on one of the levels of the chair, and Ronald begins to bounce up and down. There is a shuddering noise. The fluorescent lights waver. Then a small poof explosion and Ronald's head droops down. Quickly the doctors analyze the situation and bring things under control. Ronald's head comes back up and he looks around, dazed. The doctors study his eyes again. After studying for a while, they turn to each other. Bob, we made it. This is a specimen. Let's have a malted. A malted? Yes. What? Dan stands up. He leaps and punches his friend hard on the jaw, smacking him hard and knocking him down to the floor. Malted before we even hardly get a look at this? 
After all we've been through? We're going to work. I meant to celebrate. Hell no. I guess so, but why'd you hit me so hard? Bob pushes Dan back against the machine. Don't hit me so hard. All right, but let's get a look at this specimen. Okay, let's get a look at the specimen. What beauty. You know, we can really do something with this. Get the chart out. They both go to the wall, and Dan pulls down a wall chart entitled The Average Handsome Man. Arrows point to specific features such as straight nose, clear eyes, ears not large, strong chin, good jaw, clear complexion, etc. It's going to be some work. We just have to take our time and think it through. No mistakes this time, Bob. What do you mean, Bob? What happened last time? What do you mean, Bob? Scalpels, boy. We'll do it, okay? Just don't dwell on the past. The past is the past. Look, look, look. We'll do it. We'll just take our time and get it perfect. You know I'm a perfectionist. Dan slams his fist into his hand. I can't stand these mistakes, and then you wanted to molt it right away. What is it? You understand right, Bob? We are surgeons. We're surgeons? I meant to celebrate. You really get to me. You want me to quit? I will. I've had it. No malteds? Okay. No malteds. But stop dwelling in the past. Are we in the past? No. Hell no. I'm not going to quit. We're in the present. Why go where you're not? It's gone. All right. You can't bring it back, Dan. Face it. You can't change what. All right! Already happened. Shut up. Just you be quiet. Look at this chart, okay? We're in the present. We're going to operate. Suddenly, Dan has realized he has urinated in his pants. He looks down at the wetness. Damn. Let's get some sort of idea where we stand with this specimen, Ronald Diarte. Then we'll fix some multids. All right, Bob? All right? Now we're starting off. It's going to be one of our finest projects. There's a knock at the door. The doctors turn as the door opens. In comes Deborah, very small, very finely dressed and heavily made up woman. The doctors obviously know her and have been expecting her. Hi, Hi Deborah. Deborah. Hello, boys. Let's see him. The doctor takes her over to Ronald on the chair. Oh, sweeties. An awful lot of work for you. Oh. Don't worry about what he looks like now. He'll be all ours, won't he? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. Please, come up for dinner now. I've been waiting dinner in my apartment for you. Will you come now? Deborah, we're just barely started. You have to eat, don't you? Yes, but... I can't work on an empty stomach, Dan. I'm going to start shaking. (sighs) Shaking, shaking, shaking. Let's eat, then. I'm going to take off my light, and I'm going to pull three light plugs, and I'm going to put on my coat. Sweetie. Deborah goes to Dan and takes him by the arm, then referring back to Bob. Come, Bobby. They exit after Bob struggles into his coat. We're going to go on to our first initial reactions after reading the script. And then I know you guys might have read this a long time ago. You reread it just for the show. So basically, I just want to hear, you know, your story, getting the script, reading it, your first initial thoughts, if you remember those. And I'll just start off real quick with with mine. 
basically this took me about four sessions to read. I thought it was a page turner. I couldn't get enough. Uh, I was texting Ben a lot about it because I was just seeing all these like tiny, like, as you said, blueprints, these, these nuggets that were formed later on in other work. Um, so I thought that was a lot of fun. Like they're kind of like Easter eggs, you know? And there was some cringiness to some of the stuff. <laughs> There's a lot of women showing their boobs. Um, <laughs> it just seemed like a younger David Lynch writing, you know, I, I, I just don't understand it, but that was just something he did. I, I did find myself uh, edge of my seat when it came to the donut men. Um, with everyone dying, this very this electricity. Um, there's a lot of like a- action pieces. There's some action pieces that were pretty good. Um, I thought I thought Bob, Dan, and Deborah were funny. Uh, Bob and Dan had this very uh, Laurel and Hardy Three Stooges thing going on, and you know, the, it, then I, I was really intrigued by the dead pig that comes back to life, the <laughs> dreams. The Donut Men, I mean, these he's, he's literally called them Donut Men that come and kill people with electricity. So, I mean, for me, my, I'm, I'm just like, oh, I don't know what to think about it all. I loved it. I want to hear you guys, your first initial reactions. Joel, we'll start with you. Uh, give us your history with the script and your thoughts. Yeah, I think I this was like a link I opened up in like 2016 or something. It was like, I'll get this. And then there were years that went by as with most of the links I open up on my phone or the tabs and it just sat there. And then finally I was researching for my journey through Twin Peaks videos. And I thought I really should read this. And, uh, and then I realized there were like two drafts that are kind of different. Like I think, especially the detective storyline, if I'm not mistaken, the Ronnie stuff is a lot more similar in what happens in both, which, um, you know, to him, him being sort of created as this Frankenstein type monster um, except he's like a kid who's fueled by electricity and then becoming like a rock star and all that. I think all of that's pretty much the same. You might have notes that um, get into the weeds more, but the the detective stuff, there's a lot of different things that happen. I think the whole, if I'm not mistaken, the sequence with the family, with I think it's supposed to be Ronnie's or Ronald's because he starts off as Ronald and then he becomes Ronnie. I think that's all not in the second draft. So it's been a while since I read both. I just read the, I believe it's the second draft today. And I thought that was, um, I feel like the first one read a little better to me, but I don't know. I'm not exactly sure why. I think in a weird way, even though I, I love the sort of piling on of imagery at times, like the first one might be a little simpler and more straightforward. Um, somebody in the comments to like one of the YouTube commentaries on this noted that when they read the first draft, they had an eraser head type of feel in mind. Like they could see the mood and it, it felt like it sort of saturated. And then the second one seemed a little wackier, more over the top, like a wild at heart, which makes total sense. Cause I believe that's when he wrote these two scripts. One was right after Racerhead, and one was right around the time uh, the, or the two drafts. One was right around the time of wild at heart. So Lynch is somebody who changes a lot. Uh, it, to my mind, like he he has his consistent through lines, but his style really evolves and shifts over the years. So depending when he's tackling a project, it could be something totally different. So I think what I mo- got out of the script most, because again, like I said, it's for me reading out of the page, it's like, okay, that's a description of something that's uh, could be interesting. But like 
it's missing that other Lynchian element for me of, of the audio visual. Mm. And um, what I probably most enjoyed was seeing where things went that wound up in different works, not just Twin Peaks, which there's a lot of Twin Peaks motifs, but uh, says like digital experiments, like you mentioned the pig and there's a whole animation he did that's just a uh, pig meat, like walking slowly across the screen. It's called the pig walks, oh. like a, a pig carcass. Um, and he was going to have a pig carcass in bed with Laura Palmer in Fire Walk With Me. And it was like the only time Cheryl Lee was like, no, we're not doing that. That's not <laughs> happening. I mean, she's like an animal activist and stuff. So she's like, I, I don't think you'd have to be to not want to do that, but that added to it so so yeah he, he all of these little motifs but the funny thing is when you read it as a whole it's like there's no lynch film that this is like you know what i mean mm. like there's no lynch film set in a city with like like this type of storytelling i mean compare it to blue velvet it's like very different types of storytelling even it's the closest to a racer head of anything where he's creating an entire world that really doesn't bear that much resemblance to ours and then like in creating his own rules within that. And I think that's a mode he kind of stopped working in after Eraserhead. Like the rest of his films mostly take place in some semblance of the real world that's turned slightly askew and you know more and more so in the case of Twin Peaks, but, but starting in that place that's part of our reality. John, what is your history with this script? Obviously um, a lot about Ronnie Rocket from you know, after I got interested in Lynch way back in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, I had never really spent a lot of time with the script. I mean, I knew about the story, I knew the general outlines, I knew a lot from interviews, but I had kind of forgotten a lot of it uh, until this new re rereading that I did recently for this podcast. And it's interesting because, I mean, and I'm sure we'll get into it, we can talk about how we see elements of his latest work, Twin Peaks The Return, kind of find their roots here in this script. But you know, I kind of differ a tiny little bit with Joel, I think, in that um, I think this resembled to me, when we're talking about a city, um, Elephant Man, because there was, mm -hmm. the, there was a lot of the alleyways and the <clears throat> industrial cityscape we see of London of the 1800s in Elephant Man. And um, that came to mind when I'm, they're describing walking through the streets. Now, of course, this is a modern city compared to the London in Elephant Man. You know, they go in, there's a lot, obviously there's all this electricity and there's neon lights and there's uh, there's diners and, and uh, I think there's cars driving around, trucks. Um, so, <clears throat> so obviously it's different, but it really struck me um, uh, I almost really came out of uh, Eraserhead and Elephant Man. And in fact, when I read mm -hmm. this, I think I visualized it in black and white mm. uh, as if it, it came from that time frame of his thinking. And I don't know if he would have made it in black and white. I, you know, that's a that's something worth thinking about. Or maybe there, you know, there's two storylines going on in this script. Uh, and I wonder if one <laughs> would have been better suited for black and white and one might have been better suited for color. And that would have been a fascinating story. I'm not sure he, a way approach to making it. And I'm not sure he would have done that because it would have, it would have separated these two stories perhaps more than he wanted. So that's my first thought. My, my second thought was, 
you know, sort of trying to step back from the script and try to see it in terms of some sort of structure or some sort of approach to storytelling. I was immediately struck with the idea that uh, one story might be quote unquote real and another story might be quote unquote happening in the mind of a character. Yes. And uh, and so I that occurred to me on the first page and there was a very specific thing that happened on the first page and I'm going to just I'm just going to go right into that now if you guys don't mind but yeah um, at the beginning of the story the detective uh, visits somebody in the hospital named Ronald and he uh, you know, sits with him and Ronald writes a little note with some symbols on it and hands it to the detective the detective gets up to leave and this is right at the beginning of the script and it says in the script it says very faintly the big close-up of Ronald stays double exposed as the yeah. detective turn. And double exposed, essentially, there's a huge close-up of the face of Ronald superimposed over the action that's occurring with the detective. Oh. Says the detective gets up, he gets his quote coat, he puts it on, he looks out in the corridor, he goes down the hall and disappears around the corner. No one is on the street. He stops and turns back to see if anyone is following. He looks carefully, satisfied with the situation as it is, he turns back again and goes down the street into the darkness. Ronald's close-up fades. And so throughout this transition of the detective leaving Ronald and walking into these dark corridors, that entire time we follow the detective, Ronald's face is floating in the screen. Does that remind you of anything? <laughs> um, I mean, that is yep. part 17 of Twin Peaks The Return. And I think if you go back and you look at some of the making of documentaries for The Return, I think Lynch says to McLaughlin, there's going to be a double exposure. You know, he kind of has it visualized. You know, I have to go back and double check that. But but what's happening at the very beginning of this film is you've got this character walking away and this other character's face there as if the other character is perhaps imagining this or, mm -hmm. you know, his his mind is 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 part of whatever the detective is about to go and do. And so once I saw that right at the beginning, I couldn't help but think every time we go to the detective, this was the subconsciousness of Ronald slash Ronnie trying to solve whatever problem he's undergoing. And the detective is a piece of himself. He is sent into his subconscious to try to discover what's going on. Whereas then when we come back out of that storyline and to the Ronald slash Ronnie Rocket storyline, that may be the quote unquote real world story. Who knows what Lynch would have done and who knows how confusing that might have become. But whenever we jump from one story to the other in the script, I tried to see if there was some connective tissue between them. Is what's happening to Ronnie parallel what's happening to the detective? Right, yeah. Do they fit together? So that to me was, I was like, wow, that, is a Lynchian idea, right? That we will see potentially in, uh, well, for, for, I'd say for sure in Mulholland Drive, in Inland Empire, uh, and in Twin Peaks, these, uh, this idea that some of what we're seeing, if not all of what we're seeing, is happening inside the mind of a character who we may not see till the end or, you know, bookends the story, whatever. And so, so that that was the big big takeaway for me 
Wow. I, John, you like, I, yes, totally. <laughs> I got that, you know, we'll talk about the ending at the end of the show. So I'll put a pin on it. What you said, a lot of it, I thought about as well. I envisioned black and white when I read the detective stuff, just like Eraserhead, uh, Elephant Man, very dingy black and white. And when I was reading the stuff when it came to Bob, Dan, and uh, Ronnie, I didn't envision it in black and white. Um, mm -hmm. So I didn't envision it almost in color. And it could almost feel like, because he loves Wizard of Oz, the idea of having a black and white segment and a color segment the ending does have an opportunity to turn into full color, which we'll talk about at the end. But yeah, I mean, it does have that that feeling that you, you could have he could have messed around with black and white again and uh, color mixed in. With the ending, which we we'll, I know we're going to wait on, but the ending specifically talks about colors, right? What, you're, what colors you're seeing on the screen? So, yeah. yeah. So like his love of Wizard of Oz could have that same kind of feel to it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And before we move on to the next the next thing, any last thoughts about this this script before we move on? I think the Elephant Man comparison is a good one, and it also I think applies not just to the environment, but also the fact that even the, the storyline, which is interesting yes. because Elephant Man came to him. Um, I think he he didn't really develop it, but it's a similar story of like this Pygmalion sort of uh, approach of trying to sort of, you know, educate somebody who is has sort of trouble, you know, is in a hospital and has trouble adjusting to the, to uh, the outside society and all of that and, and teaching them certain words or phrases and things like that and uh and trying to protect them from people who will exploit them mm, exactly and wondering if yeah. you're doing a good job doing that like a very elephant man so it's interesting that this was supposed to be his follow-up to Eraserhead, and then he ended up with a much more conventional hollywood film which had similar themes in it yeah, I was really struck to the Elephant Man comparisons when there's essentially someone who is exploiting Ronnie, you know, for a show, for the public. He's putting yeah. him on display. And the I think it's a Mr. Barco is the character's name in Ronnie Rocket, who who I can't remember the character's name in the Elephant Man, but you know, the guy who who's essentially pulls the curtain back to show the Elephant Man and, and is profiting off the the curiosity that is the elephant man and that boy i every time i would read that character mr barco i would envision that kind of scene from the elephant man main city bob and dan's laboratory day it is foggy outside the lab windows distant factory sounds are heard the doctors have opened ronald up and are putting electrical components inside of him after closing him, they leave a tube through the skin onto which they hook an electrical device that Ronald will always have to wear on his chest. Out of the device comes another tube, and at the end of, of it, there is a rubber bag and a small needle, which is again inserted back into Ronald's skin and taped over with adhesive tape. They use electricity in several foreign manners to carve Ronald's face and graft on new features. Unfortunately, these doctors aren't the artists they think they are. Their hearts are in the right place, and they have tremendous energy. The results are far and away from handsome. The doctors are very serious while they work. 
They concentrate very hard and their faces contort in funny ways. It's now break time and Bob is bringing the Maltins over to where Dan is by Ronald. As they drink their Maltins, they discuss their work. What are you thinking? I'm thinking that the ears will have to be really done well this time, Bob. I agree with that. They're complicated. And always before, we seem to hurry through the ears. You want to divide up the work as usual? I'll take the ears and you do the nose or something? Maybe. Dan reaches over slowly and turns a dial and Ronald moves some and opens his mouth. Inside the mouth, the tongue starts flapping. He turns the dial down some. That mouth is going to be a problem. Well, do you want to talk it through? Shall we start on it? There's something else that we haven't thought about, Bob. And that is hair. I was going to say, yes, I know. Hair, that is something to think about. Hair. Dan downs the rest of his malt and stands up, pauses, moves close to Ronald. I'd like to do the ears, Bob. You've been leading up to this. I knew it. I know they weren't quite right last time. You want the ears? Well, I want the ears too. Bob stands up. I grafted them high last time. But this isn't the point. I'm the ear specialist. You've got no right taking the ears. You've only done one ear. I want the ears. You've been trying to think of a way to get the ears. I know you. You've been lying awake nights thinking of how you could manipulate me into giving you the ears. And on this project, I've seen you planning. I knew you were trying to get them for me. I knew it. Bob strikes, cuts and smashes Dan in the face. A short fist fight follows and then... All right, you keep the damn ears. Bob bleeding and panting. No, you take the ears. It's not worth it. I'll work on something else. Maybe the hair or something. No, I'm, I'm sorry, Bob. We'll both work on everything. That way it'll be perfect. You take an ear and I'll take an ear. We just have to keep good measurements. We've got to keep good measurements. Dan buckles over and slams his fist into his hand for emphasis. The laboratory is now lit for precision work, and the chart of the average handsome man has been moved in closer to the doctor's work area. They're each working on Ronald's head. The process involves a light foam over the skin and electrical instruments hooked here and there. Small electrical tools are used by the doctors to reform Ronald's skin. The foam hides most of the work. Dan is now putting the nose into place. Bob is assisting. Dan lifts the nose off the table where he has been fashioning it. The area for the nose has now been cleared. Dan is just starting to place the nose. That looks good. If I can place it now, let's have the opening. All right. Bob pulls some skin apart. Dan placing the nose. This is about the best nose we've ever done. It is. Hand me the cotter and then let's stitch this. Hold it. Let me plug it in. As Bob plugs the, the cotter in, Ronald begins to make a strange noise. Bob adjusts the dial and the noise stops. He hands Dan the cotter. Good. Dan begins a delicate burn all around the seam of the nose and head. Bob begins a stitching process. The ears will be next. Later, Deborah is standing looking at Ronald and his new nose. The rest of Ronald's head is covered with foam, except for the mouth, which looks like it always has. This nose reminds me of a small pillow. It's so soft looking. I like it very much. You are rebuilding this boy. He is so fortunate to have you two. 
Dan and Bob smile. Deborah walks slowly crossing the room, then turns. Bobby, come now. Upstairs with me. Go ahead, Bob. It's late. We're through for the night. Don't do anything till I get back. I won't. Don't even clean up anything. Promise? I won't. Do you promise? I promise! Just go to bed. I promise, I promise, I promise! Dan stamps his feet. Come, Bobby. Dan will behave himself. Deborah and Bob are crossing her living room. It is fairly dark. Remember the yellow light bulb? (laughs) Deborah laughs. Bob is embarrassed. I've got a new one for you, Bobby. And some new wire. Happy? Hmm? Happy? Bob smiles sheepishly. Downstairs in the laboratory, Dan is over near Ronald, and he is pacing around and around. Suddenly, he can't help himself. He decides to break his promise and plunges into work on Ronald. He begins to prepare the side of Ronald's head for an ear. What elements did you notice that David Lynch that uh, brought into, we already talked about this a little bit, uh, but let's, we can dive in more here. Um, What elements did you notice that David Lynch has brought to his other work? Uh, For example, the golden orbs, the firewall, which as soon as they described the firewall, I thought of um, Wild at Heart and I Mm -hmm. used the firewall. So there are some assets that in the script that essentially would uh, go into his other works. And a part of me, you know, just thinking about it now, I'm like, did he tell the Ronnie Rocket story in Twin Peaks season three? I mean, (laughs) did he? I kind of feel like he might have. Uh, You guys have anything we haven't mentioned or you want to elaborate more on anything? We did talk about um, elements that bled into his other works. I did notice that, uh, like I said, there are all these pieces, but it's funny how they're all sort of like detached and reassembled in a different way, you know, like nothing. uh, There are some ideas in here that uh, you can sort of see like playing out in the return or other works in the same way. But a lot of it's just like, it's like a salvage job almost, you know, Mm -hmm. where he's like taking parts and and putting them into a new machine. It's just interesting to observe. Um, I think one thing that struck me was, and this is, you know, I, I've been writing so much about Twin Peaks, so I can't help but, you know, bring in the stuff I've been reading about recently. And, you know, I, I've done a lot of reading about Lynch and Kafka, and I know that Lynch wanted to to make the Metamorphosis, one, another one of the scripts that never got made. But he also talked about in an interview, um, the idea of making the trial. And he called the trial, I believe in one interview, um, the de- a detective story. Kafka had written a detective story. Can you imagine? He, he talks about it that way. Hmm. And, and so that, the reason why that, that struck me is that you know in Kafka you have characters who often don't have full names or any name at all so the detective struck me as a Kafka-esque character you have a character in the castle called K and then in the trial you have a character called Joseph K and they don't have a full identity and the detective made me think of that and the idea that you have this sort of labyrinthian city with different forces at play that really reminded me of the trial uh and and sort of being subject to the forces of a bureaucracy or some sort of um uh, government that 
you know, it sort of works in mysterious ways. And the detective is kind of trying to pierce that, get in. And what happens to the detective, like happens to this character in the trial, is he sort of jumps from place to place to place. He goes into a house and then he's got to get out through the through a ladder and, and then he's suddenly he's in another house. And mm. all of that read very Kafka-esque to me. And I think it's possible that Lynch was really being influenced by those works, particularly I would say the trial, that he has discussed in interviews where he kind of wanted to do something like that, but um, but it just never happened. And then my favorite part of that whole sequence with the detective where he's sort of wandering through these different, this like series of rooms and encounters and all that was the part where like the policeman um, takes him to different rooms. And yes. it reminded me of something out of a cartoon, like a mm. yellow submarine where they're opening all the doors and there's like impossible things behind the doors. But that like really struck me tunes. as Kafka though. That really struck me as Kafka going into to the, you know, the building, uh, uh, the trial Joseph K and he goes in and he's looking in different rooms and he gets lost in this, anyway. Yeah, I love that sort of stuff. Like just <clears throat> yeah, all these all all these little worlds opening up, and yeah. I think uh, it actually it, of cartoon. It specifically reminds me of the cartoon, the Betty Boop cartoon, Bimbo's Initiation, where he goes into like a clubhouse, like a secret society clubhouse, and they're asking him, "Want to be a member? Want to be a member?" And they keep sending him to this series of like hellish rooms <laughs> with like things coming out of the walls and all that. So. Yeah, that was a strange string of events when you go into different rooms. And, you know, in the beginning, I mentioned how, like, a lot of these women would just show their boobs. But I, you know, just thinking about this, like, John, about the whole, you know, if we are in Ronnie's mind Mm -hmm. and he's a teenage boy, that is in line with that, right? He's a teenage boy. That's something he fan. That's part of a teenage boy's fantasy, um, and I think like so that makes more sense in the, the script. Because when I first read it, I'm just like, why is this happening? Why yeah, is I, every yeah. woman doing this? Yeah, I. It, it seemed to me to be um, really self. I, th- I thought of it at first as self indulgent on Lynch's part. He's just like, well, okay, we're just going to see that we're focusing on the anatomy constantly. We're focusing yeah. on this female anatomy, and it. It was it was too much, but then I did think that way. That well, I guess I could excuse it, in that uh, because I am thinking that one part is more of a mental journey and the other is more of a real you know real world. That maybe it's just those elements just keep recurring in his mind. Um, but yeah, that was a little off-putting to me. To be honest yes. with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It reminded me of that extras episode where Ricky Gervais is talking to Patrick Stewart, and he's all reverent. He's like, yeah. "Oh, sir, sir, you're such a wonderful actor." And Patrick Stewart's like, "Let me tell you about a screenplay I wrote, and it's just all about him encountering various women and their clothes fall off." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's it. That's the whole script. And that he's is like awesome. describing it in these lofty terms. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, totally. I, think, I was, yeah, go on. Well, down, I, you know, I was going to say, I, I, I kind of, I was thinking, well, maybe Lynch outgrew this, but then I was reminded of, no. <laughs> uh, of, I was reminded of Inland Empire. There's a scene in Inland Empire where it's just so blatant, you know, the woman takes her top off, and it just, it just seems so obviously self-indulgent that it just and then, he, and then he married her, didn't he? Um, that another one? I I don't know I don't know but <laughs> but but it it 
I anyway, I don't want to get too much into the psychology of David Lynch. So right, right, <laughs> whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, I yeah, I didn't make us go off uh, the rabbit hole yeah. here. Well, I will say, if you're gonna do that, you got to do it like ten. Like if you do, if he did it two or three times, then it would seem like you're just being really something but if you do it 10 times it's like okay this is now a thing yes yeah. <laughs> right you almost can get away with it more at that point because you're drawing yeah. attention to it but like if in the context of the story thinking about it now i like you said john i, I kind of excuse it because if this is in a teenage boy and he's having this inner journey uh with this detective you know he gets distracted by shiny things. And those shiny things are something he's never seen before. So if a female enters his subconscious, that's probably where it would go for him. Um, so that, yeah, I kind of get, I kind of, I kind of excuse it now. It is off-putting. I was just kind of like, this is kind of ridiculous. Why is this mm -hmm. always happening? But I think yeah. just discussing it now, it made me think uh, a little bit more about it and that it makes maybe a little bit more sense. Well, it was the same sexual fantasy every time. Yeah. It wasn't anything, there was no variety. <laughs> it was always <laughs> it was always the same thing. And that's what it was like. Maybe that was deliberate. Maybe that right. was like, okay, we're it's a clue that we're seeing this from a specific mind. Because right. it, it never it never changes. <laughs> totally. And it's a very simple, innocent, I mean innocent, um, way you know it's nothing it's nothing beyond that so yeah that it's very it, it's a visual thing right yeah, there's no action there's just him sort of being a, a voyeur totally i know we'll talk about this later on but obviously the golden orb at the end is very reminiscent of twin peaks the return which i know we'll save that for the end but that was a I was just like, oh, the orbs, the golden lights, that's kind of a returning, that's a theme he had in his mind back then. And obviously donuts, the donut men, I know I keep right, electricity, electricity has a big part in this. And it's oh, weird yeah. um, because electricity is in, if we're in Ronnie's head, it's electricity in our body that's creating all this, but it's destroying something too. And there's, there's an obvious, a uh, conflict between dark and light. John, what, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, the electricity, obviously, this is all about electricity. And um, I don't think there's any other work that Lynch is so devoted to exploring um, the idea of whatever electricity means to him. Obviously, Twin Peaks would probably be the next one. Right. Um, I think this maybe give us a little bit of clue as to what electricity means in Twin Peaks in that it's sort of a life force it's a mm. it's 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 a symbol for sort of that that you know whatever it is that animates us makes us alive and in this film ronnie rocket it's electricity and i think maybe to some extent it is electricity in uh in twin peaks that's the code word for it and so and i think yeah isn't there like a reversed electricity also right uh and so that you know, that is, again, where you've got these sort of two opposite storylines. One may be real, one may be mental. One has the electricity with Ronnie Rocket using it as, a, you know, to be a rock star. But then there's the darker or reversed electricity in the detective story, right? And that's, the, that's sort of the problem to solve. Isn't that what they're trying to do? They're trying to figure out how to, how to, to, to correct that. And so on a very, very fundamental level, I'm thinking, well, you know, something's wrong 
with Ronnie, either physically or mentally, and he is trying to fix it. He sent a detective in to find it and solve it so that he would be uh, healthy again. Yeah. There was uh, in Rob King's article that he wrote, which I definitely recommend um, reading on Ronnie Rocket, there's a part where he talks about uh, ACDC, the alternating current versus the direct current, and how a lot of fans uh, read. I mean, I think on uh, what was it? Um, Counter Esperanto, I think the podcast, uh, they were talking about how they would call Good Cooper. Uh, I think good Cooper DC and bad Cooper was AC, you know, these ideas of the way the different flows of the currents, the different ways they work. And I'm not, I, it's, I can't totally wrap my head around electricity. So a lot of yeah. it is, uh, but Lynch himself described this film as being about the, the 60, is it the, what did he say? The 60 watt, I don't want to misquote him, but like he listed off the things it was about. It was about like three or four things. And one of them was like, in addition to, you know, a little guy who this and that also just like, it's literally about electricity and using the idea of like flowing currents and reversing in the positive and negative charge in either direction. Yeah, um, it is. It it's is. a storytelling mechanism with the two right. stories going in different directions. He kind of reduces it to that and simplifies it. And I think later works complicate that idea a little more and he, he's a little more subtle or he's a little more nuanced with with some of that but in this script it's pretty obvious there is you know there's this there's one over here and it's binary mm. there's ones and zeros <laughs> later that night deborah bob and dan are all staring at ronald he has on his new red wig of high wavy pompadour style hair it's perfect it's perfect it is perfect sweets is he finished almost but we have to start him you set bob all set pull three lights oh. bob and dan each have several controls they begin turning dials and pulling levers the chair begins to vibrate some and ronald begins to come too but very slowly from time to time, he opens his mouth and emits some strange sounds. And also from time to time, he blacks out altogether. Even when he's out, he twitches and bounces. When he begins to fade, Bob and Dan pour on the juice and the lights dim way down and there is an eerie glow. Deborah looks beautiful in the glow as she watches the spectacle. Slowly, Ronald begins to come to again. He looks very awake and his eyes roll around. He begins to move and he begins to scream. He starts to stand as he screams and vibrates violently when all the lights blow out. Pow! All at once, Ronald falls back in his chair and is still. However, he looks awake now. The moonlight is illuminating the room slightly. Scalpels! Bob is looking out the window. I think we blew out the whole building. Ronald moans and his eyes start rolling. I hope he's all right. How will you fix the electricity? They'll be on it soon, but last time it took hours. I'm afraid this is it for a while. Ronald stops moaning and looks peaceful. He looks peaceful now, in the darkness. Is he all right, honeys? I think he's all right. We brought him around. Ronald's eyes are open, dazed and peaceful looking. Bob, Dan and Deborah move to a window and look out on the city. Deborah turns to Bob and then to Dan. 
She gives Dan a slow, tender kiss on the lips, and then she gives Bob the same. The three of them stand close together, looking out the window. Ronald sits looking around the room, still tied to many wires and sitting low in the chair. Some clouds go by slowly, and Bob and Dan and Deborah, hugging now, watch the city and the sky. Suddenly the power comes back on. Ronald screams, bloody murder, and is shot out of his chair 20 feet through the air. The wire stuck to him, keeping from going any further. The lights in the room blink on and off, and the equipment goes crazy with sounds and sparks. Bob and Dan rush to turn things off. What happened? You forgot to turn the damn machines off, that's what happened. I forgot? Well, what does it look like? Sweet, stop, stop! I forgot. What about you? Bob shoves Dan and he trips over Ronald's wires. Bob hits Dan hard in the nose. The fight goes on all around Ronald, who is also on the floor. In and amongst the wires, Dan and Bob beat each other while Deborah is screaming for them to stop. Ronald sits up. The lights flutter several times, dim, and then go out. This stops the fight, and all is dark and quiet, except for heavy breathing. There must have been 10,000 volts through him. I think we may have some trouble here. You're bad. You're bad, bad, bad. But did you see him fly across the room? Like a rocket? Ronnie the rocket? Ronnie rocket. Up close on Ronald. In the Moonlight Laboratory, he says. Ronnie rocket. The other three turn to him in amazement. Halfway through the Ronnie Rocket special. I am your host, Scott Ryan. They wanted me to play a part, but um, please, they can't afford me. Twin Peaks Unwrapped budget has gone down the hill. I wanted to let you know that in 2022, I will be having my first Twin Peaks book ever. Yeah, I know. Isn't it weird? I've actually never written a Twin Peaks book. Uh, it's called Firewalk With Me, Your Laura Disappeared. And it's about the 30th anniversary of Firewalk With Me. And here's the thing. All right now, you want to pre-order it. And I know what you're saying. Scott, you're always begging us to pre-order. Well, you know, the pre-orders are where it's at. But this time, it's super important. And here's why. I'm going to do a limited run of Firewalk With Me that's going to be in color on the good paper that Laura's Ghost and my Moonlighting book was done on. Those are only going to be sold through the BlueRoseMag.com and FayettevilleMafiaPress.com. So if you don't pre-order it now, you're not going to get one of those. I'm only printing what pre-orders. It's going to be a little bit more expensive, not for you, but for me. But I really want to have a good color copy because my interview with Ron Garcia and I go through the shots he did and that's when I was like, oh, this book needs to be in color so you can see the colors he's talking about. Well, the books that are going to be sold on Amazon and other places, they're going to be in black and white and it's going to be print on demand because that's the future of publishing. But as a Blue Rose subscriber, you know, you're kind of used to us doing these color things. The only way you're going to get that is by pre-ordering it and ordering it from the bluerosemag.com or fayettevillemafiapress.com. It's still going to be $22. 
I'm not even going to charge you any more. Once I print them, believe me, they're going to be charged more. And these are going to be the books that I sell at events. The book has Cheryl Lee in it, a brand new interview you've never heard. We've got interview with Greg Feinberg, who produced it. He tells great stories. You don't hear him talking about it. Mary Sweeney, another interview that, you know, not a lot of people have gotten. And then there's a lot of nonsense in it, just like you would expect from me. So it's called Firewalk With Me, Your Laura Disappeared. If we get enough pre-orders, you know, it's going to help. We can print more books in color and true Twin Peaks fans can have that experience. So help out and go to bluerosemag.com, order some back issues, order Mark Frost book or Women of Lynch or Laura's Ghost by Courtney and support us. You know, you saw what happened with the art issue where people didn't pre-order and then we couldn't order very many and they were gone in a second. It is not easy what we're doing. And you don't want to hear this. You want to get back to Ronnie to Rocket. I get it. But while you're listening to them act it out, maybe you pick up a book and you get a classic. So, back to the show. We're going to jump into thoughts on characters. I'm, I'm very interested with this stuff. Um, this first set of characters we're going to kind of focus on is the the detective's world um in his supporting characters uh terry the knitters donut men uh diana etc and for me real quickly the whole time i had kyle mclaughlin in my head for the detective how could you not um and the one for me i don't know why i was really fascinated by the knitters and for people out there you know you haven't read the script yet the knitters i you know i don't know much about them they there are two i think they're just two women right and they're just old ladies knitting and they just seem to like they have like one-liners <clears throat> they make comments and they they follow the detective and his buddies around a little bit and they had this mysteriousness to them i thought it was like kind of cool world building like you're giving us something you're not telling us much about it it's kind of reminding me a little bit of john wick uh, I don't know why I thought about like the cleanup guys after they have their in John Wick, you know, in the, in the first one when you didn't have sequels giving us more information, you just had this cleanup crew that would come and take care of all the bodies and everything. And they, they were kind of mysterious, like in Pulp Fiction, the cleanup crew to take, you know, to clean the back of the car. And these people just come in and out. You don't know much about them, they're fascinating. And then for me, the knitters were kind of that way. I wanted to know more about the backstory. I'm like, why are they, why do they exist? And for me, I don't know why. The detective was great. He was Kyle and the knitters. I, I just wanted more. I wanted a whole movie about the knitters. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, for you guys, I'll start with you, John. Um, out of, in this world, uh, what fascinated you the most? Well, I mean, I kind of covered it a little bit. I did think of the detective as sort of this um, um, archetype, you know, that he was he was um, he was sort of a leading man looking figure uh, from a noir film from the 1940s who had, you know, the, the hat and the overcoat and um, chiseled features. I guess I thought him very generically because he's called the detective. So mm. I didn't have a an actor in mind. Uh, other than you know just sort of your hollywood actor uh leading man from the 
40s or 50s. And, you know, again, there's not a lot of depth to him, really, right? I mean, mm. I guess he falls in love with, uh, well, maybe is it more than one woman he's kind of attracted to and he, he cares about, but he's sort of on a quest. He's got to go in and he's got to solve this problem. So I, I, I at least that's how I was perceiving him. Um, brief, brief comment on the knitters. Mm-hmm. That struck me as really odd because I'd never seen anything like that in a Lynch film, or at least it, it, nothing's equating in my mind. Maybe it's, there's something there that I'm just totally missing. But um, you know, you could argue maybe Mrs. Tremond or you know something like that to sort of the sort of um, character that's in the margins a little bit who who appears from time to time. But the knitters, and then I tried to think of symbolism. Well, what's knitting? You know, Lynch right. and knitting. And the only thing I could think of was the idea that you're you know you're you're, we- you're weaving or you're knitting or you're pulling threads together to make something whole, which mm. again fit in. And this is just me really trying to read in an interpretation. The, the idea that the detective and this part of the story is a way to try to heal or fix uh, some wound, and the idea of knitting together struck me maybe as symbolic i'm not sure lynch thought it through that much but it worked for me i think three things come to mind for me with with those figures one just straightforwardly i believe there's somebody uh kind of an older lady knitting in uh above the nightclub or above the bar in blue velvet in ben's Mm. place i might be wrong about that but it's like one of those weird incongruous things where it's like all these hipster guys getting together to do drugs and all this and yet they're hanging out with all these like middle-aged women like knitting things in the corner yes and then uh the other is is there is something with lynch that i feel like has never gotten fully explored but it's like this idea of like threads and holding things oh sure the thread will be torn mr palmer and Mm -hmm. then in the um the alternate ending to the pilot the one-armed man says to cooper you know about Teresa and the red thread or something like that so there's this weird fascination he has with that and then the third thing was just as figures who kind of like like an entourage that follows around they made me think of like Candy Sandy and Mandy in uh mm. the return oh mm. yeah 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 like that kind of squad you know <laughs> except in this case it's a bunch of old ladies knitting <laughs> Yeah, uh, like, you know, the the knitters could have been, I mean, Bob and Dan were working on him and they're essentially putting parts in knitting. I mean, they're sewing they're things stitching, on to him. They're stitching, yeah. yeah. stitching the ears. They have an argument about the ears. Right, right. So, <laughs> Which is a blue velvet type of thing. The ear, you know, had it come <laughs> off. and <laughs> That's so, so true. Um, yeah, so those knitters could have been subconsciously in his mind while he's being worked on maybe i don't know sure yeah yeah i don't know Um. interior testing room and surrounding halls day this testing room is surrounded by wire reinforced glass so the student can be observed on all four sides there is a large clock above the glass on one wall ronnie is seated in a desk and the stern receptionist is speaking to him. An extension cord and electrical box have been provided for Ronnie's electrical needs. Bob, Dan, and Deborah have been allowed to watch, but they are outside the room looking in through the glass. They can just barely hear the receptionist. This is not a party. 
This is not a rowdy night on the town. This is a test. This is a three-part test, multiple choice, true or false, and essay. I will be watching you, young man, so no funny business. You have a half hour? And I might add this test has been devised by Dr. Herbert Smythe of Freeport University. Funny business? The stern receptionist turns and leaves the room, but she remains for a while at the glass until she sees Ronnie start filling in squares on the multiple choice part of the test. I told him just color in the blocks where he wanted to. We'll leave it up to fate. I told him to, Deborah. Suddenly, Ronnie starts flipping pennies and going, crouching down, looking, then going back and marking his paper. Deborah looks at Bob and Dan. He's on the true or false section now. Just then, the receptionist appears again. She is shocked by what she sees Ronnie doing. She enters the testing room in a rage. All right, young man. What is the meaning of this? Don't think you'll put one over on me or Dr. Smythe. You cannot fool Dr. Smythe. The bell rings. Ronnie's head flies back, and the receptionist grabs the test from him and marches off. Bob, Dan, and Deborah look worried. Later, in the principal's office, they all wait, as the receptionist brings in the results of the entrance exam. She hands them to Mr. Murdo. She looks very angrily at them all, then leaves. Murdo looks at the exam, and then at Ronnie. Ronnie Rocket. Ronnie Rocket. Do you like mathematics? Ronnie says nothing. Are you interested in mathematics? Getting no response from Ronnie, Mr. Murdo speaks to the rest. He shows a definite gift in higher mathematics. Quite a gift. The rest of the exam is mediocre. But as far as I'm concerned, he is eligible for our school. Bob, Dan, and Deborah share an incredulous look. He's a puzzling boy. Does he have brothers and sisters? No. He's an only child. I see. An only child. Oh, Ronnie. Ronnie says nothing. He's got the blemishes they all seem to get at this age. (laughs) I had the blemishes bad when I was a youngster. Coal cities is where I grew up. The black coal dust clouds would blow all day and all into the night. It got the coal dust in my teeth and hair and all in the pores of my skin. All the kids had it bad. It's when I saw Ronnie here. I hadn't seen it quite like his since I was back in the coal cities. The factories here will do it too. The coal, the smoke, the black smoke makes red sores. That always seemed funny to me. That black smoke would make red sores. All the kids had them. Reminds me just looking at Ronnie. Mr. Murdo picks up the exam. So this Ronnie Rocket is a mathematician, is he? All nod up and down. Ronnie Rocket. Ronnie Rocket. Yes. Well, you can start school on Monday, Ronnie. At this... Ronnie's warning signal starts up on his chest appliance, and he gets a queer expression on his face. He bends over slowly and walks to an outlet and plugs himself in. The principal watches this. Ronnie's face is forlorn, a faraway look in his eyes. 
Deborah, Dan, and Bob all look at Ronnie, and then at each other, and Mr. Murdo, then back to Ronnie, who has found several dead flies by the window. He is gathering them together in his hand. Okay, we're going to have to put a pin in this conversation. This is going to be to be continued to next week for part two of a very Ronnie Rocket holiday special.